Hey kids, what time is it? Time for another episode of Brio TV, the podcast. I'm your host, Bill Brio. This episode is brought to you by Super Channel, providing viewers with exceptional value and variety, CTV, which urges you to get into it, and Hollywood Suite, home of the best movies of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. This episode, we're going to talk about a three-hour cruise, and I don't mean Gilligan's Island. This is a documentary that navigates the limestone shores of the Bruce Peninsula, and it's from one of my favorite filmmakers. I'm talking about Tripping the Bruce, and it premieres April 15th on TVO. Please welcome producer-director Mitch Azaria. Mitch, great to see you again. Nice to see you, and, and there is a little bit of Gilligan's in this one. Well, there's a there's a boat that sails and there's shipwrecks, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there there are both and and a tremendous amount of shipwrecks. Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing this region. Your your previous tripping documentaries looked at uh, two other great regions. You started with uh, the Rideau Canal, uh, and that trip was taken on a beautiful wooden mahogany uh, runabout, an inboard. Uh, cruiser that was just glorious and then you went tripping the uh, niagara region and that was sort of a bird's eye view right with a hawk as kind of the uh the theme this time it's largely by sailboat right it's by sailboat uh it's uh entirely by sailboat and it's it's an area that lends itself to sailing too well yeah you you it's pretty hard as you suggest in the dock to uh explore those shores any other way uh, they really are still very primitive and uninhabitable uh there's these giant limestone cliffs and um what i love about these films we've got three hours to sort of meditate and really take a close look um now tell me first of all now <laughs> i think the last time we talked i said you know you next time you should do the bruce uh i, I bet you were already thinking that way but what, what was it about uh, this region that made it your next choice well you know what I, I when you said that i i really didn't know what you meant you know really? i feel like I've, I've explored a lot of canada because we did you know a great canadian park series and we did a river yeah. series and i feel like I, I know a lot of the country and I went away and said, the Bruce. And, and, and I got curious about it. And we went up and scouted it. And you've been up there and you know, the moment you get there and the moment you get to Tobermory and you see that water and you see, you know, how crystal clear it is. I mean, it, it might as well be the Caribbean. And then you've got this escarpment, as you said, these soaring cliffs coming down yeah. and sea stacks um, we knew within 30 seconds that this had to be um, our next episode. It's just, it's, 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 it's a, a hidden gem, but I guess a little less so during the pandemic because I know it's getting big numbers now. But boy, is that a beautiful area. Yeah, and it really is like stepping back in time. Um, for me, it always has been because I think of my dad building a cottage on the shores of Lake Huron further south um, towards Sable Beach. But nonetheless, uh, after World War II, he would swam, swam up on a shore and looked out and asked around if this lot was for sale. Um, so it has a very 
as a cottager nostalgic vibe, but it has a his almost prehistoric uh, vibe to it, doesn't it? When you look at those cliffs, you get a sense that you're really going back in time. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a section called Cave Point that is it's it is it's it's primitive, it's spooky. I mean, it's it's this area. It's in a mind's eye, you kind of imagine these you know, 150-foot soaring black stone car system. And just the fact that it's a car system, which, you know, is sort of you know, a, a description of a, of, of a ground that's, you know, full of holes and caves. And, um, you know, you see it in Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's just, it's, it's a spooky, bat-filled sort of environment that's constantly evolving because the water is, you know, is creating new, um, new passages, new tunnels, new caves. Um, it's 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 primitive, but but quite striking. Yeah, is it ever? It's like uh, Lord of the Rings. It's it's got it's got a vibe to it that is uh, you, you'd have to make up uh, in a special effects uh, computer somewhere. Um, tell me first why uh, how you came to determine um, the sailboat as the vehicle, and also who are those two guys. <laughs> I'm still wondering that. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, and you you said that earlier, it, this is a primitive and tough to get to coastline. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there's lots of commercial boats that will take you out from Tobermory and they'll take you to Flower Pot Island and 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 sort of, you know, maybe to the grotto. But none of the none of the commercial boats are licensed to go um, across the entire um, northern um, peninsula because it's treacherous and things can change in a hurry. And um, I guess, you know, it's 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 dangerous enough that um, they can't get permission to, you know, to do that entire coastline. So this was a guy that we met and he's um, he, he actually is a. Um, he, he, he runs one of the marinas um, on the on the coast and is a you know one of these guys that there's no such thing as too much wind and there's no such thing as as um, as you know any kind of danger when he's sailing so he was the perfect guy and he had a friend who at, turned out to be a retired um, policeman from Scarborough put 35 years in in Scarborough so nothing <laughs> nothing wow. intimidated him. no yeah and, and the, the two guys were terrific I mean they were just uh, they're they just really keen um, and, uh, and great sailors. And as you also probably know, the waters there, as much as they're crystal clear, they're full of these boulders that would come in off of, you know, over time, rolled in off the escarpment. So, you know, there was always somebody standing at the bow, just waiting and looking and watching to make sure that, uh, you know, they didn't run aground. And, and, you know, and that's, you know, that was, that was the case for, you know, so many of these wrecks that you see uh, up there now. Yeah, the one of the guys right on the bow, and I'm, one of them says that uh, yeah, the the rocks are real keel chewers. I think uh, you know, and and I love the the sound all through the film. Your other uh, documentaries as well. Um, you know, you're, you it takes you on that ride because you hear the waves lapping against the sailboat, the wind and the sail. You hear the birds and um, a lot of gulls and and other noises that really bring you there how much of that is enhanced do you have to spike that a bit to uh or do you just find it as you travel yeah it's a combination of both i mean there's moments where um you know we we can get the field sound 
But there's also moments where, you know, one of us is yelling at somebody else, <laughs> you know, because the idea is, okay, we're going to, we're going to stay real quiet. <laughs> that, that, that's never the case, but we had, you know, we had the, the sailboat quite mic'd up and, um, you know, we had, we had microphones in a bunch of different directions and those guys, you know, it's, it's interesting when you get two guys that really know each other, um, they, their, 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 their conversation, um, you know, tended to be, um, not about what, you know, what, what, what they were seeing, it tended to be, you know, about sort of times they've spent together. So for, yeah. for you know, for, for a lot of it, we just couldn't put her in there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fun to take that trip with them, but yeah, you, you're, you, you provide a lot of information on all of your tripping, uh, films. A lot of it is shown, uh, on screen and, uh, there's, I learned an awful lot. And in fact, I've never been to, um, that bay, Wingfield Basin. I mean, I don't really sail, uh, so unless you had a boat that you were doing what these guys are doing, you may not know of this little protected pocket there, is, which is where you leave from. Um, and and really, there were many other parts of it because I don't have that vantage point. They were new to me as well. Um, I know there's bats on the Bruce because I see them at night, even down where the cottage is, you know, but uh, that really put it in perspective those uh, those caves are deep um and, and and that was pretty cool um i wanted to ask about the camera work um because i know in the past uh on uh, uh the first uh, one especially with the boat you had a special uh tripod with a head that reacted like a person you know you, you the way you tilted and looked gave you that perspective and there's a lot of drone work in uh the niagara trip um i imagine that's the case here as well right yeah th- we we actually use the same rigging that we used for um for the rito and you know you, you saw the rito that there couldn't be a more placid piece of water right it was yeah. you know, barely a ripple but it you know it, it did it did hold everything very steady um, we did our first um, our first mounting of the camera. We did a we did a run. It looked like a pretty good day, and as you know, being up there, um, days can look really good and turn in a hurry. And if you know, if you imagine we're we're huddled, um, me and the director um, are huddled, kind of under. It's almost like a tarpaulin. Um, and, um, it's, you know, it's quite a long run to be underneath without being able to see anything but a monitor. And then the water got incredibly rough. And, um, I mean, we were just being bounced around and equipment was flying all over the place and it started off as a perfect, you know, perfect morning, but it, it just changes so fast. And I was asking the captain, I said, well, you know, you told us there was no wind and this was going to be a great day. And he said, oh, yeah, but, you know, this, this, this isn't what you're feeling isn't the wind from today. It was a storm yesterday that's been coming across the lake. And that's why it's hitting us sideways. It's, it's not the wind from today that's coming head on. This is, this is a one day old storm that the rollers are still hitting us. Yeah, and, no, uh, you, you and, can't. Sorry, go out. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's precarious because we're so close to the coast. Yeah, you know, like it didn't wouldn't take much to push us in. So we eventually gave up on that day and had to go out a, a few times before we got that that perfect day. Yeah, it, it's uh, especially around the top there. Wow, you know, I mean, that's really exposed. That's like being on the ocean, and uh, 
I can imagine it changes. Uh, you know, I, neighbors at the cottage have their sea-dews uh, anchored outside overnight. And I'm thinking, you idiots, these things could be 100 kilometers inland in the morning. You just never know. It's not a forgiving lake. I think you list there's like a 1,000 uh, ships that have sunk in uh, Lake Huron, right? And that's the 1,000 they've recorded. I mean, right. I, I can't imagine how many more there are. We'll have more with Mitch's area after this short message. For eight seasons, When Calls the Heart has entertained viewers with tales of Mounties, school marms, and plenty of frontier romance. Saddle up for a ninth season as the town of Hope Valley gets set for some brand new adventures. Elizabeth Thatcher, played by Hallmark Queen Erin Krakow, is back, as are a couple of wonderful guests to this podcast, Pascal Hutton, Kavan Smith, and Andrea Brooks. They'll be joined, I'm told, by some new strangers in town. Season 9 begins March 6, exclusively on Super Channel Heart and Home. Later in March, Super Channel will be home once again to the Canadian Film Fest, The indie-spirited at-home festival invites film fans to butter up some popcorn and stream some exciting new offerings. These come from filmmakers all across Canada. This year, 10 new features and 30 shorts will be premiering exclusively on Super Channel Fuse beginning on March 22nd. And don't forget, you can also find and stream the entire Super Channel menu through Amazon Prime or via the Apple TV app. And we're back with Tripping the Bruce executive producer, Mitch Azaria. Now, will you take us down under the surface to some of the shipwrecks as part of uh, Tripping the Bruce? Um, Is there such a thing as an underwater drone, or is that all divers with cameras? That's a great question, because I never knew there was an underwater drone. Um, our first rigging, we, you know, we rigged um, a fairly large camera because the challenge for us, you know, Bill, was that we were trying to do what we did above water, underwater. So, you know, mostly when you see most dive scenes, you know, there's 30 seconds, 45 seconds. They tend to be fairly short shots. I mean, we think of the Titanic, but that was at a depth where there's absolutely no movement in the water. Not to say that that's an easy thing to do, but it's, it's a different animal where we were filming lots and lots of movement. So we were trying to find a rig that could go for, you know, 15 minutes across um, a shipwreck with, you know, with a gyro that, you know, would allow so that we wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be any feeling of movement. The ride would be really smooth. And we, we, we got a, a great diver uh, who's primarily a, a, a cinematographer. He built a custom rig for us. And, you know, in a way we went. The challenge with it was that it was so big. It was almost as big as the diver, the complete rig. Wow. And as soon as you get any water movement, it was, you know, it was all he could do to hold on to it. So we, we did a few, uh, a few wrecks that way. And then... Um, we found a guy who had an underwater drone, um, and that was a tremendous tool, but it's tethered. So it's got a, a, a hundred meter um, tether on it, which is, 
you know, which is okay, but it means that you kind of have to follow it along right. um, from the top side. But what it allows, and we, we talked about this a lot, you know, as control freaks, as directors and producers, we want to see exactly what we're filming. When you send a diver down, it's, you know, you don't know what you've got until he comes back up and you get to screen it. Huh. With a drone, you know, you get the feedback right there. You can you can tell the drone operator exactly off the monitor, you know, you know, pan left, pan right, slow down, you know. So you have more control with the drone, but the drone has its own sort of um, problems because the tether, if there's any wave action, the tether will pull the drone along and sort of jerk it a little bit. Um, it's it's got a bit of a personality to the drone. It it's it, it it's not a perfect. No, nothing's perfect for underwater. No, I wouldn't imagine. It's got to be trickier. Um, did you shoot this last summer? We shot it. Yeah, we shot it last uh, last summer. We we were up there for uh, probably off and on for about a month. Um, last summer, the summer before that was the high mark for the lake. Uh, and it was very high. I mean, I've been going up all my life. That was about as high as I had ever seen. And if people aren't familiar, the, the lake literally rises and falls. My dad would say seven years up, seven years down. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh, – everybody has their own fable about that. To me, it's like the stock market. It goes down faster than it goes up. <laughs> but um, it, it was pretty high when you were up. And um, you note on in some instances we see on the shore the white limestone indicates that's the natural look. Uh, the, the ice has kind of rubbed off the gray, and you see a bit of what it really should look like. Um but did that help that it was so high in terms of filming um, some of these shipwrecks? It, it, it did help um, because, uh, you know, for instance, maybe the, the most famous shipwreck, um, the sweepstakes, which is it, it's, it's part of Tobermory. I mean, it's in the, the bigger bay of Tobermory, but it's still considered in Tobermory. There's times, you know, as you said, when, when the water is so low that you actually couldn't dive on top of it because – you know, it's, it's actually come out of the water. Yeah. So, you know, in an instance like that, you know, we had enough water that we could, you know, <laughs> send a diver on top of it. But um, even then it was just, you know, it was still sort of just barely uh, below the surface. I've been over that one in a glass bottom boat. They have tours up in Tobermory and uh, it is shocking uh, because it does seem like you can barely clear it. Uh, that's part of it is the water so clear. How deep is uh, something like the, uh, the, uh, some of the other, are you, are you in like 30 feet, 30 meters of water uh, at some of the other shipwrecks that you're looking at? Yeah, so the deepest one that we, we were on was 30 meters exactly, and that's the Niagara. And the, the Niagara is kind of the Niagara too. Um, it's, mm. it's an interesting story because um, what was happening was that um, there was a sense by some of the local divers that the, the, the shipwrecks that were there were getting, you know, um, they, were, they were getting too much, um, too much attention huh. and um, they wanted to sort of defray some of that. So what they did was they raised enough dough and bought um, an old um, sand sucker, a beautiful ship. And, um, you know, cleaned it all out, prepped it all, and then, you know, took it just off the coast outside of the marine park so that, you know, they didn't have to get permissions to do that. And then literally um, blew the bottom, not part of the bottom out of it so that it would sink, you know, that what they hoped was perfectly upright. 
And, um, you know, they got all kinds of boats out there. This was in 1999. They got, um, you know, tons of boats out there to watch the sinking. Everybody crossed their fingers that it would, you know, it would land upright. And it did. And it's now maybe one of the most popular dive sites because it's a, you know, perfectly intact, um, you know, um, ship that's sitting, you know, nicely, you know, nicely upright. Yeah, I, I had no idea this even existed. Uh, that, that a boat was actually sunk, the Niagara Two, uh, at just like you say, a little over twenty years ago, and uh, yeah, that was a surprise to me to learn that. Um, but they took all the dangerous, the doors and things. People can't get caught up in it. They stripped it down to make it safer, right, for people to navigate. Yeah, and, and they did it. They, I mean, and they had to clean it out too because at one point it was oil owned by an oil company. So they they scrubbed it clean and they put some cool enhancements in it. I mean, if it, the, the, there's very easy, we we didn't go completely into the interior, but they they enhanced it. You know, they put um, an old wheel up um, in the in the in the mess area. They still have plates and you know and and and, and stuff on you know sort of safely on 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 the walls and racks and stuff. So. It's it's quite quite an eerie eerie boat and um, and and it took a lot of pressure off the other boats because the other boats were you know were really getting dived on. We had an interesting story on 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 one of the most difficult wrecks to get to is a is a wreck called the City of Cleveland, hmm. and it's about two hours off the coast, and you need an absolutely perfect day to get out there. Because it's in an area that if there's any wave action at all, it's quite shallow. And um, if you if you try and moor, there's a good chance that you're going to end up, um, you know, wrecking. So um, we went out <clears throat> with um, um, Divers Den, this, this company in Tobermory, and they said, you've got a day that we've been waiting for for two years. We've we've like we never get this perfect a day. You know, let's go. So we were going out with the underwater drone because we figured, you know, that that would be the perfect thing. Relatively shallow um, wreck, uh, three quarters of a football field, huge long wreck. So we wow. figured, you know, the the the, the 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 underwater drone would handle it perfectly rather than a diver to be underwater for that long. So we get out there. We're all excited. We moor up. We get the underwater drone in the water. And we've got the underwater drone operator, me as the director, the captain, and a safety diver. And the safety diver is a, a, a woman who, who owns the shop. The drone gets into the water, belly flops, and essentially fuses out. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. So, I mean... I can't tell you how disappointed we were. So I looked at, at the safety diver. Her name is Kelly McAdam. And I said, Kelly, you're plan B. And she said, what do you mean plan B? I said, I've got a GoPro <laughs> and you're going to really? film the track. And she said, I, I don't know what a GoPro is. I've never filmed anything. In my life. How am I going to film for you? And I said, well, look where we are. We have, there's no other choice. I mean, I, I can't get in the water. I don't, you know, I, I'm not a diver. So she said, okay, Mitch, you know, tell me what to do. So I gave her like a, a three minute, you know, instructional. She got in the water, you know, 15 minutes, came back out. We, we screened the tape and it, you know, it was, it was wonky to say, you know, it was, it was not, not terrific footage. So I said to her, okay, you know, you got to go a little slower. You got to get closer to, you know, closer to the wreck. Um, you got to keep a nice steady speed. And anyway, we walked through a whole bunch of little tips 
She goes back in the water. She comes out 15 minutes later. She breaks through the surface and she says, you're welcome. And wow. I said, she said, I got it for you. Wow. She, it's in the program. It's just dynamite <laughs> that's amazing that's it's, amazing I, I i've got one of those little gopros which comes in a plastic encased watertight seal so for for 300 bucks you were able to <laughs> basically go in and record this amazing scene that's amazing good for you it was it, I, i've never had an aha or a relief like that ever in <laughs> in the field i mean it was just and her like well you uh, you know if, if you saw that part of the film that's her on on a second take. She does that perfectly. Incredible. That's really yeah. cool. Uh, another thing that you do on this uh, tripping that you've done on the other two is you employ animation to convey um, certain things uh, in Niagara. It's amazing. You go back to uh, a couple of hundred years. The 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 war settlements and the and the uh, all the, that that kind of stuff, but to show what the town was like um, here, it's mainly about the ships. Uh, is that the same animator that worked on the other projects? Yeah, that's that's Matt Knight, and um, he. The, the, so what he what we said to him is we want to give people a sense because you 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 see the the ship underwater. But you have no sense of what it would have been like, you know, in its heyday or what, you know, what it was like when it was under, you know, full sail or, you know, full propulsion. And we want to give people a sense of that. And then we thought, well, if we're going to give them a sense of that, we might as well, you know, recreate what happened when it was wrecked. And uh, and he said, yeah, 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 I can do that. And we thought, yeah, that's, that's really hard to do. When he showed us the first um, rendition of it, um, John and I, the director, we actually, we, we, we were terrified. Like, <laughs> it, it was so realistic. Like, it really felt like you were, you know, you were watching a shipwreck. It was, yeah. it, it, I mean, it, it's hard to believe that it. it's, I guess that's where animation's getting to. I mean, he's particularly good, but yeah. it's so realistic. It is, and uh, you experience this cloud's, coming in and the storm is gathering and then suddenly you're just surrounded uh when the first boat goes down it's it's very dramatic uh and smart hey don't go tripping the bruce just yet we'll be back with more in a moment The folks at CTV are always planting seeds looking for that next crop of hit shows Here's one that sounds like an old SCTV sketch, but it isn't. It's real, and it's based on a format that has been popular in Europe and other places for years. It's an unscripted dating series called Farming for Love. Titled The Farmer Wants a Wife in Other Countries, the series has already been seen in Australia, Croatia, Denmark, France, Germany, the Netherlands, many other countries. The series has led to 191 weddings and 445 children. That's a lot of children. There's even a Canadian-French language version, Le Moure c'est dans le pré. Le Moure dans le pré, oui, c'est vrai. They're currently in its 10th season. That series has spawned 15 couples and 27 children. Suit alors! The idea is to follow five rural Canadian singles and a group of urban singles on a quest for romance. Ten hour-long episodes will be shot later this year in British Columbia. 
Okay, are you still with me? I swear this is not some sort of April Fool's joke. The daters are assigned several chores, everything from milking cows to picking fruit. If you're up for the challenge, the deadline is April 15th. So make hay while the sun shines. Go to ctv.ca slash ctv slash farming dash for dash love dash casting for more information and get ready to say Goodbye, city life. And here he is again, Mitch Azaria. The other part I found is fascinating by this whole region uh, and its history is obviously the First Nation element, uh, the Saugeen and Ojibwe. Uh, very much this is their territory. There's a number of reserves to this day on, at Chief's Point and other places. Um, did you um, in your what did your research tell you about First Nations on the Bruce and did you was it required you get any permissions or any kind of special um, uh, conversations with them about shooting up there? Um, we, we didn't only because we we're we we're on the coastline. Had we you know had we come inland, of course we we would have, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have a, a lot of dialogue. We did a lot of research and, and, and sort of included, um, you know, lots of, um, you know, lots of Aboriginal history in there, but it's, 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 I think you said it, you know, at the beginning, it's just such a beautiful prehistoric landscape. Yeah. And you, what, what you get is you get the ability to see it and know, that, you know, what you're seeing is, you know, has been seen for millennia, you know, it's, 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 it's virtually unchanged. The only part that's, you know, that really strikes me is that if you imagine that the Bruce is a continuation of the escarpment and that yeah. at, at the end of the Bruce, it actually, the escarpment continues underwater to Manitoulin Island and then eventually, you know, goes through Manitoulin Island and swings around top of Lake Huron comes down through Wisconsin. So at one point, the area that's now underwater that connects the Bruce Peninsula and Manitoulin Island was above water. And um, it, it was a, it was a corridor. It was a wildlife corridor. It was a human corridor. And it also included um, a great waterfall. And some say maybe a waterfall that was higher than Niagara Falls. And that waterfall, or at least the drop of the waterfall, still exists underneath the uh, underneath Lake Huron, and archaeologists have recorded it. So it's it's you know it's 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 a it's a landscape that's changed, but also remains the same. But to imagine that you know almost in, not in the middle of the lake, but in off you know off the coast and in the water, there's still you know this this this. This crevice that's you know that, that's higher than Niagara Falls. That was a mind mind blower for me. I never knew that, and um, that's a long way. Like if you go up to Tobamori and you drive onto the Chichiman and you you travel to Manitoulin, I think that's a nearly two hour trip. Um, that's a long way to have that escarpment continue underwater all the way to this large landmass, which is Manitoulin. It's quite big. Uh, so I never knew that. That's fascinating. Um, and that's what. Sorry, the Chichiman's a good story too. I mean, uh, not you know, not just that ship, but what I re- what I realized when we were researching it was that 
you know that ship in in the Toronto Harbor, the Captain John's. Yeah. Well, that was once the ferry between um, Tobermory and uh, and and the Man- and Manitoulin Island. Really, did not know that. Uh, I don't. It's not there anymore, Captain John's. Is it or is it? I, I don't remember. No, I think they they they, they towed it and, and and eventually used it for scrap. But uh, yeah, it, it was. I think it was twenty years in service um, between those two points. I don't remember if I might have been on it if it was still in service when I was a, a youngster. But uh, the the Chichimon, I think can hold up to 70 cars or something it's quite a a a lot and uh you feel like you're on an ocean liner because it's just open water once you're in the middle up there it's it's quite a feeling um and um so you weren't really that familiar with the region before you started this particular project right i you know on it when, as I said, when you said the bruise, <laughs> I really had to go. <laughs> I had to go look it up. I had to with a what? And and no, so I was completely unfamiliar with it. And and as I said, within thirty seconds of arriving in Tobermory, we went. This is just a spectacular, spectacular area. And the town of Tobermory, I mean, I'm sure you know it well. I mean, it's 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 a really neat little town. You know, it's it's got this. You know this great grocery store that's you know family owned, uh, Peacocks. They you know their family go back you know to the early settlers, um, and because they get so many different tourists there, it's it, it's this tiny grocery store. But they have like foods from th- you know from all over the world because the tourists come. You know they're new Canadians and they want you know and they've learned that you know you can't just sort of feed the you know the locals. And at the same time. You know, at the height of season, restaurants will, you know, will, 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 you know, they'll say we're closing at eight o'clock and it doesn't matter that there's 20 people waiting, you know, they're, they're going to close at eight o'clock because they're going to go home and spend time with their family. And, uh, you know, there were restaurants up there because during the pandemic, it was so busy um, that were, were, were closed for, for days because they couldn't get, they had run out of food. They just hadn't expected, you know, so many people. So. It's it's, yeah. it's it's a neat little town. It it is. It's um it's a sleepy little town is almost too strong a word. You know, it's like a it's a harbor with a few places and it's sort of I think some people go up there thinking, Wow, I can hardly wait, it's gonna be like Niagara Falls. Uh no, it's it's just a couple of places, um and a and a place to catch the boat. Um and you're right, I remember going up there years ago and that one little place the sign on the door was appearing tonight, Valdi. I said, "What? Wow. It was playing to like fourteen people? How? <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Like, imagine you get a private concert with Valdi uh, because there's not a lot going on, uh, which is kind of what is. And there's a sweet shop if you want. If you like toffee, go to Tobamori. It's a long drive, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, there's not a lot of options, which is kind of nice. And that brings my next question, bitch. You know, I, and looking. Uh, watching in the documentary, uh, which again is coming to TVO, is it April fifteenth? Is that your premiere date? Yeah, April fifteenth, seven o'clock TVO. Yeah, we're yeah. we're excited. Yeah, it's it's uh, three hours and uninterrupted, and you'll learn an awful lot about this region. Um, but you look, there's a spot toward the middle. You get uh, about halfway, and you start to see a couple of really grand looking cottages that are facing the lake there aren't very most of this trip is uninhabited cliffs and um 
You know, with the way Scott, uh, cottage properties and properties all over Ontario are skyrocketing, skyrocketing, uh, the fear is that, um, you know, that at some point this could be uh, all developed. And I know that here's another fact I didn't realize that that Bruce National Park only started in 1987. That, that was surprising to me. And it's quite large, but boy, the temptation to develop must be uh, nibbling away at this. Uh, do you have the same concern? I, I don't in, 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 in the sense that um, I know that, um, you know, in talking to a lot of locals, because we spent so much time up there, they say that there, there's really no, um, there's no appetite by the, you know, by the, by the, by the, by the local council um, to, you know, to bring more than, than what already is. You know, I, I know that there's a movement to, you know, they want to, there's some developers that would like to come there and, and, and you know, and, and build, um, you know, bigger hotels and, um, build, you know, more, you know, more cottage kind of, you know, gated communities. And there's a huge pushback by the local community. I think they really like what they do. And, you know, going back to the restaurants, I mean, you know, at eight o'clock, they're going home. Like they, they, they want, they want to live, you know, the, the life they live. They don't yeah. necessarily want to change things. So no, I, I, I'm, I'm not worried. And I think the park does a really good job of managing, you know, even their busiest place, which is, you know, the grotto, which is, you know, their top attraction. And for good reason, it's an absolutely, you know, natural, beautiful site. Um, but, you know, they're regulating, you know, numbers there. They're regulating numbers out on the water, visiting, you know, the shipwrecks and so forth. So I, I, I'm not. I think they, they're doing a great job. Yeah, it's nice that they've kept it very natural. Uh, another feature that you show is all the uh, various species of birds that um, are part of that environment. And uh, I know, you know, I've, I, even down where we are, you see um, uh, great Bruce Heron, uh, the, the um, you know, the giant span, wingspans of these birds. A lot of birders come up to look at all kinds of nesting areas. Uh, and you do have lots of hawks and the occasional bald eagle. Um, that must have been fascinating to uh, discover all of that when you were working on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I love flora and fauna. And, you know, it's funny about the blue herons. I remember um, filming one, and it and it stood with its wings apart, you know, and it just stood there, like, completely, completely still. And I thought, wow, you know, well, like what patience. And then, you know, a birder was telling me that they do that. They put out their wings to create shade. And then the shade, you know, the fish will come into the structure and that's when they strike, right? Wow. So you're actually setting the trap. But, you know, there were a couple of things that I didn't realize. I mean, I kind of knew about the Massasaga rattlers, but I didn't yeah. realize that, you know, that they were, you know, that the, the level of protection and, you know, the fact that they're um, they're on some of the islands within Fathom 5. And then the black bear, that there was a subspecies of black bears. I yeah. Never, yeah. I never knew that. I, Neither I did I. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, they're a smaller animal because they've been um, isolated, to, you know, on the peninsula and um, had to adapt to, I guess, less food and so forth. So over, you know, generations and generations, they've become a smaller animal. 
Well, also in the last few years with the pandemic and fewer people being around and less traffic and also the water being so high, even down in cottage country, uh, many more bear uh, sightings and, and uh, also more snakes. A lot of other uh, wildlife seem to come back into uh, areas uh, literally invading cottages and things, um, getting nervier because they're there weren't as many people around for a while so we were getting a little too up close and personal it wasn't just at the dump you know you you could see these guys if you look out the window sometimes <laughs> it's crazy and and uh, the bats too is a fascination uh you also talk about fishing and how um the uh lampreys when they were introduced through the canals and on clinging to ships uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago, it started to really affect the fish population, that they actually uh, found ways to um, uh, control them to the point where they're almost gone. And it, it, I think you say in the one of your dialogues, that's the most successful distinction, or whatever you call removal, uh, ever uh, in terms of a species. It was, and it's funny because I... I met a guy recently who was part of that um, movement. And yeah, I mean, they took a very, you know, um, a, a, a very measured um, and cooperative because they did it through um, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission to figure out, OK, how do we remove these, you know, these eels? And they realized that they were they were breeding in, in, in the streams that were sort of feeding into the lake. And they thought if they could get to those areas and block those areas, not allow the, you know, the lamprey to get in there, that that would do that would do um, a lot of good. And, yeah, it, it is still considered, um, you know, the, the most successful effort to uh, control an aquatic invasive species in North America, which is, you know, which is amazing. And they're they, like there was there was nothing good that that you know that 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 species brought and it and, and it was only able to do it because of um you know because of the opening of the of, of the saint lawrence seaway which is a story upon itself and what that did to you know not just the lower but the upper great lakes as well yeah a lot of stuff clinging to those boats uh did a lot of damage for sure um now um this is uh, your latest project, uh, and I'm sure you're starting to think of what's next. Um, dare I make um, the next suggestion? <laughs> please, please let it be somewhere I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. How about tripping Brampton? Tripping. There you go. You can, you can take a drone camera through the Bramley City Center. Um, yeah, I don't know if that would be that fascinating. No, don't do don't do Heart Lake. Don't do Brampton. We'll have more with Mitch Azaria after this short message. Time once again to check in with Emily Gagne to see what's new this month at Hollywood Suite. Emily, what do you got? Hey, Bill. Uh, happy to be here, as always. Uh, I'd love to tell you about The Allegation, which is an award-winning legal drama that we have coming in April. Uh, it's based on a shocking scandal that rocked the German legal system. And I would kind of compare it to like a broad church in terms of uh, subject matter, but it's also got some hints of John Wick. It's, it's, it's a surprise series, and I definitely check it out. It starts on April 7th if you want to watch on broadcast, but you can also watch the whole series 
series on demand on April 1st. All right. You guys always have the good dark dramas on Sweet, so looking forward to that. Now, tell me, though, there's some laughs coming up this month as well, aren't there? Sure are. We've got our LOL collection. Uh, you know, LOL stands for lots of laughs, not lots of love, contrary to popular belief. And we have some great classics like uh, Love starring Elaine May and Jack Lemmon and Peter Falk, but also stuff like When Harry Met Sally, Overboard, Austin Powers, The Mask. And if you're into the modern stuff, Talladega Nights, The House Bunny, The 21 Jump Street series. We've got a little bit for every taste, I would say. Yeah, tell out day and nights. John C. Riley cracks me up every time. He's great. Emily, quickly, what's your all-time favorite comedy film? I would say it's Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. It's been on the brain recently because it is 25 years old this year. Isn't that crazy, Bill? That is crazy, Emily. That dates me. That rocks my world. I can't believe it, <laughs> but I will be watching. So, Emily, listen, thanks again for all the good news. April on Hollywood Suite. Thanks, Bill. And we're back with Tripping the Bruce executive producer, Mitch Azaria. It would seem, though, I, when I was a youngster, I worked as a busboy at Ontario Place, and uh, uh, it was pretty new then. And the film that was on in the Cinesphere all the time was North of Superior. And it just seemed that that region that most of us aren't familiar with at all, going way up to Churchill Falls or the north, would, would lend itself well uh, to your your filmmaking as well, uh, tripping up there because there's uh, canyons and all kinds of riverways and systems that uh, most of us aren't really that familiar with. And, you know, just the whole story about um, polar bears and things that are changing in the environment might make a good uh, subject for you as well. Is that something you would consider? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's quite insightful. So um, this past year, we really wanted to go up north. I mean, we, we were we were determined to go up north, but the pandemic really didn't allow us to. And um, it's been our intention to get there as soon as we can. And we've got um, we've got our sights on, on a, a, a kind of obscure but quite beautiful railway that runs um, up north. And we've also got a, a canoe route that we're really looking at. So we're wow. thinking that it might be it might be a canoe, like a nice paddle, which I think would be very, very relaxing. And a rail um, is incredibly relaxing to see the front of a train and, and be able to sort of just pan off to the sides. But our intention all along has been to get to northern uh, Ontario. We just we haven't been able to, you know, because of the pandemic, there's been um, yeah. You know, obviously, really, really strict, um, you know, uh, restrictions to to, you know, to go anywhere um, in, in northern Ontario. That does sound exciting, though. I've always wanted to take the Agua Canyon uh, trip uh, anywhere up there would be really cool to see. Um, the other two uh, tripping the Niagara and uh, tripping the, the uh, redo. Um, to me, it was perfect pandemic programming because you couldn't go anywhere, but this allowed you still to take a trip somewhere uh, and, and in real time and live it and, and let it sink in and feel it. Um, this one, same, we're still in, in times where you have to be careful, but for the first time, this seems more like, uh, gee, this is interesting. I could go there this summer. Uh, you know, like, do, do you see that distinction with tripping the Bruce that it's a little closer to uh, more open times where people can go out and visit? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping that's the case. And, and you know, the, 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 I think they said um, when we were talking to the park folks that, you know, despite the, you know, the pandemic, this past summer was, was one of their busiest summers ever. And, um, you know, lots and lots of people were, you know, trying to get outside, trying to, you know, trying to explore. Um, I think that, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, people will, you know, will, will watch, you know, this, this, despite the, the pandemic and, you know, and, and I hope that if nothing else, we've sort of, you know, shown them a part of the province that I didn't know until, you know, you prompted me. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I think it's a, like not, you know, not just the part that we did, but as you know, from Sobble Beach up, like the whole peninsula is incredibly interesting. Um, so I hope people, you know, continue to, to go up there and, you know, treat it respectably and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and find like another great part of this province. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And you're right. I mean, you could do another three hours just going from Sobble up through Red Bay and, uh, Cove Bay and all these other places to get uh, up to Tobemori on that side. Um, and I love too, I didn't realize that, that the flower pot island, that those pots those big stone uh monuments that are so iconic that they were um that there's concrete there to help them remain there right I, that's a little addition that was made years ago and i didn't realize that so that was smart thank goodness you would hate to see them topple over yeah i mean you know the first thing you see when you come into the sort of tobermory outskirts is you know a huge replica of you know of a flower pot right because it's it's such they're so closely related right i mean that's their whole their whole tourist business is based on those flower pots and um you know the park says that they haven't touched them since the 1930s that you know that it's not their way you know in in modern times to ever you know mess with a natural feature but I don't think that the 1930s cement is the only cement that's ever been. <laughs> if they were to go, it's like in Wyarton. They have Wyarton Willie, except they don't. Like, you know, Wyarton Willie, I remember working at the Sun one year, and they and the front page of the Toronto Sun was this dead groundhog that they pulled out of the hole, and all these kids went home crying because they didn't realize that the groundhog had died. And so they've had, like been trying ever since then and this year i don't know they used a puppet you know they had the mayor just sort of lean their head into a hole going oh yeah he said there won't snow again like it's it's pathetic now wired and willie uh you have to have the thing there and so uh, <laughs> let's keep let's keep flower pot island mitch i want to ask three questions now that to wrap things up just about that i ask everybody that's kind enough to come on the podcast and that these are more television questions so um basically what are you watching is there shows that you're binging right now are you do you tend to look at a lot of documentaries uh what what's caught your eye these days yeah i, I probably watch 90 percent documentaries i just uh yeah i mean it's it uh, so but my job i just turned on to fleabag i didn't you know i missed that when it first came out so that's a that's pretty a, good it's, oh that's really good that's <laughs> really really good yeah that one really caught me by surprise and i also loved um i loved uh mayor of east town i just thought yeah she was absolutely brilliant that like that what a performance and i love jeff daniels in american rust i thought you know that was another 
you know, yeah. uh, great uh, series, though it never sort of resolved itself, which was surprising. But no, for, for the most part, I, I watch I watch uh, I watch documentaries. A lot of great documentaries. Everything seems right now. And I love this era, 1969, 1970. I mean, you got the Beatles get back uh, all the, uh, the the music that came out of California in the 70s. Uh, but even, you know, Muhammad Ali, Ken Burns. Yeah, a lot of things that are within our lifetimes, you know, which is uh, interesting, but still 50 years ago. Are, are these films that you tend to look at as well? Yeah. And I, you know, I, 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 I really like the Beatles doc. Like you, you could you could say that maybe it was a little too raw, you know, that, you know, maybe Peter didn't go far enough, you know, to sort of, um, you know, build it. But in a way, it's kind of what we do, you know, like there's something really neat about just kind of being, you know, um, you know, I guess the old, you know, sort of, you know, fly on the wall. Like it's, it's really neat to have something that isn't overtreated, you know, and I, I'm sure he had a heck of a challenge trying to, you know, get the, 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 the picture um, lined up to the audio. And you could see he was cutting away consistently because he just didn't have the, you know, he didn't have the matching picture. He had all the audio, but imagine in those days, you're changing reels every seven minutes or whatever, even though he's got coverage from four different cameras. I'm sure he missed so many good scenes, but he had the audio, you know? It's a bit shocking in 16 millimeter to try to have done that with the old magazines that maybe hold 10 minutes, right? And you're right. Even when you look at the trailers for uh, Get Back, the the voice, he cut it differently. He's got scenes where John Lennon is answering George quite bluntly, that wasn't the case when you watched the documentary, right? And uh, it's it's he was smart enough in the trailer to cheat it to make you intrigued enough to look at the whole thing. Um, the other thing I want to ask is uh, when you were a youngster, when you were first uh, growing up and watching television, did you have a favorite show? Is there something you would rush home from school to see? What was your? Do you have a memory of a great TV show back then? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, it was uh, dash home at noon, catch the Flintstones from 12 to 12.30, zip back down to uh, to school, you know, sort of half eating a sandwich, and then coming home and, you know, Gilligan's Island, you know, you mentioned Gilligan's Island off yeah. the top, right? I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I love that, Hogan's Heroes, like, you know, it was the, the sort of stand, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid of the 60s, right? So, you know, those were the, you know, those those were the the programs I'd watch. And then Mod Squad on Tuesdays at 8.30, we'd get permission to stay up late to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> For probably half your half your listeners, probably I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself and they don't remember those programs. But No, I think a lot of folks listen because they remember those shows to this podcast. <laughs> uh, they'll know who Link and uh, those guys all are. Um, yeah. I did this. Did you grow up in Toronto? Mitch? I grew up in Montreal. Montreal, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. when I grew up in Toronto, the CFTO had uh, the Flintstones on at uh, noon, and it followed by the old black and white Jeopardy with Art Fleming, where they would come on, yeah, where they physically they would slide. You know, the answer is, and they would some guy behind a board would <laughs> would lift up the panel. Uh, that's what I used to try to watch when I was rushing home from school, <laughs> dating myself terribly now. Um, some guy lifting up the panels. Yeah, Art Fleming, this this like military guy, and he was like, the answer is. And you'd hear, you'd hear a slip. 
<laughs> you wouldn't want somebody too quick on the buzzer. That guy would get worn out after. Right. <laughs> like, you could barely read potent potables. It was so worn from this guy sliding the card up and down. Uh, the, the final question is... Uh, do you have an all-time favorite TV theme song? Is there something wow. from then or now that uh, rings a bell that you always thought that was pretty cool? She, I guess Shaft doesn't count because that was a film, right? Oh, that was a TV series. That absolutely counts. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Then I'll, I'll go. I'll go with Shaft. Isaac Hayes, right? <laughs> yeah. He's he's a bad. Shut your mouth. You're talking about <laughs> Shaft. But I'm talking about John Shaft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, listen, Mitch. It's a pleasure to catch up with you and continued success. I hope you make a bunch more of these. And uh, thank you for chronicling so much of Ontario. They must be very very pleased at TV Ontario to showcase these great documentaries. Uh, keep up the great work, and thanks very much for your time uh, today. Well, thanks for your interest, Bill, and always a real, real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Mitch. Take care. While Mitch singled out the theme from Shaft as his all-time favorite, it was also the pick of Arnold Pinnock a few podcasts ago. Let's go then with a theme from another series Mitch mentioned, The Mod Squad. The series, which aired from 1968 to 1973, featured three heavy cops, played by Clarence Williams III, Peggy Lipton, and Michael Cole. The energetic theme song was composed by prolific TV theme meister Earl Hagen, a former big band trombone player who composed some of the most memorable themes from the 60s. If you've ever whistled, hummed, or toe-tapped along to the themes from The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Gomer Pyle, That Girl, and I Spy, you can thank Earl Hagen. Thanks, as always, to Phil Hong for producing this podcast. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Katie Brio, who did the graphic design at the main Brio TV site. Thanks as well to everyone listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word with a like or a review. A review. And don't mention that I stumbled on the word review. And remember, you can always catch up on TV news and reviews daily at Brio.tv. I'm Bill Brio. Thanks for listening.